Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. I need to pray and ask for God's help, and I want you to join me as I do. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you are very clearly on the move. The gospel has been and is on the move. It is dynamic and powerful and unstoppable, and we wouldn't be here with our stories of your faithfulness otherwise. You have been present since before we took our first breath. You were singing over us. You you are holy. There's no one like you. The angels cover themselves and call out holy because, because you are entirely other. There's no one like you, perfect in all of your ways, perfect in your grace, in your kindness, and in the way that you have pursued sinners like us. And so we rejoice and we say thank you. My request in these moments tonight is that you would show each of us what it means that the gospel is on the move and that we individually are invited. Not historically and not even as a congregation, but as individuals who've been touched by your grace that we are called into the movement of the gospel, that you have a plan to redeem the world and you've worked us into it. What a stunning gift. I pray that we would receive it with joy, that we would step into it with confidence. We're asking now, Holy Spirit, empower my words. Give us energy, focus, and clarity as we engage in this work. You're invited here. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God does in fact have a plan to change the world, to redeem the world. He has a plan, and by His grace, you are central to it. God has this wild plan that He has enacted and is very clearly on the move, and you are central to it. He is intending to redeem a people from every nation and tribe and tongue, and the way that he is going to do it is through you. When we consider that in inviting us to taste his grace into conversion from death to life, from darkness to light, that we are enlivened, but from that place there is this transformation that begins to take place as he pours his spirit into us and begins to empower us to look more and more like his son as we in him are commissioned to be a part of changing the world. This is the message you've been hearing today if you've been with us. And this is a plan that we saw as Pastor Femi spoke is as big as the world, as big as history. And then in our second session, we saw that and each community is called to participate in it. And what I would like to address in our time tonight is that you have a particular role to play. And so I want to do two things. We're going to examine two passages of Scripture together. The first is a, a rather prominent passage. We're going to look at Matthew 28 and the Great Commission to establish the groundwork of what is this grand plan that you are central in. And then I want to press a little bit further and say, what does it look like in a, in a way that has shoe leather on? In a way that is down in the dirt that has soil on? I want to talk about how might it actually look for you? Because the truth is, when we start to realize that we've been invited to participate in God's plan to change the world, we may think, well, I need to run for president. Or I need to be wealthy and connected so that I can fund things and push things forward. Or I need to be eloquent that I might be able to stand and to speak powerfully. And what we are going to see is that this is not what is required to be a part of God's plan to change the world. 
In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the final command that Jesus is going to speak, we see very clearly what his plan is and how you can play a role. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, if, if we're just reading straight through, we already, this, something's wrong. Right off the bat, something is wrong. That's the wrong number. That's, it's, it's a bad place to start. Twelve is always the number of completion. Twelve tribes of Israel, when Jesus was constituting his people, he particularly chose twelve. This continuation that Femi was talking about, that he is the fulfillment of what Israel was intended to be. So even in glory, we're going to see that the foundations are the twelve tribes of Israel, the gates of the twelve tribes, or pardon me, the twelve apostles, that we see this this connectivity between the old and the new. Twelve is the number of completion. And so when you start this passage and you say, now there were eleven. Matthew is front-loading. He's drawing front and center the reminder that one was a traitor and he hung himself. This is a wrong number. We couldn't even get the right number to the starting line. It's the, it's the wrong number. It's a ragtag group. It's the wrong number. But then he goes on to say this, and when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. It's the wrong number, and they got the wrong kind of faith. This is, this is not the sort of group that you select to change the world. You're not complete. And each of your faith is faltering. Some don't even know in this moment. They're, they're seeing the resurrected King Jesus, and they can't quite muster the faith. If I'm Jesus, I'm going, I need a different team. <laughs> this was never about the team. He is the one that's going to do this work. And so he says, give me the wrong number, the wrong sort of faith, and I'll show you what it looks like to change the world. Listen, if right now we feel like, well, I don't know if we, we've, we've got the right number of people. I don't know if we've we're, we're, we got the right amount of faith. Listen, this word is for you. This is what he says. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Incidentally, that's why your number and your faith don't matter much. <laughs> I've got all the authority in heaven and earth. It's all mine. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the, age, to the end of the age. Jesus delivers his final commandment with how it's going to take place, and he does it in an envelope of his power. He starts by saying, all the authority is mine, and he finishes it by saying, and by the way, I'll be with you to the last moment. So whatever he's going to say between those words, it's 11, and they're lacking faith. It doesn't matter who's standing in front of him when he says, I've got all the power in all the world, and by the way, I'm going to be with you until the end. He can say whatever he wants between those two statements, and by the way, it's coming true. <laughs> And what he says in the midst, it packs only one command. There's only one command in the Great Commission, right? There's one command and there's three verbs that explain the command. The central command, the only verb that is in the imperative tense, it's the only command that Jesus is speaking. He says, make disciples. He says, make disciples. The text says, Go, therefore, it, it might be a better translation to say, as you are going. It means this verb describes that verb. As you are going, make disciples and do it in this way, baptizing and teaching them. Conversion and transformation. It is baked in. He's saying, make disciples as you go by seeing the conversion of sinners and the transformation of saints. This is the final command the way that we talk about this in the community that I lead, our shorthand for discipleship, we say, be one, make some. Be one, make some. Be one, make some. The call to engage in the great and final command of Jesus is to be a disciple who makes disciples. To, to, if I were just to slow down and say, okay, let's, let's double click on that. What do we mean, be one, make some? Our shorthand definition is this. 
If we're going to follow the final command of Jesus, we're going to be so relationally connected to Jesus that his fruit is going to show up on our branches. Like we're so relationally connected to him. We so enjoy him and savor him and love him that all of a sudden there's love and joy and peace and patience in greater and increasing ways. Be a disciple. Make disciples. Be so relationally connected to other people that your fruit shows up on their branch. And if you do both of those things simultaneously, listen, the world is going to change because there will be Jesus fruit everywhere. You follow me? Yes. Be one, make some. This is the final commandment that Jesus gives. He's speaking to his people and he's saying, you have to be baptized, you have to be transformed, soaked and saturated with my presence, then taught to walk in my ways. And then you go and you do the same for others. Be one, make some. This is how you're going to be a part of changing the world. And listen, you don't have to be a president or a wealthy business person or an eloquent preacher or a can you make a relationship? Can you love Jesus and love people? This is God's plan for changing the world. He has all authority and he'll be with you to the end. And what he's inviting you to do is will you step out with courageous faith and experience the wild adventure of being God's plan A for transforming the world. This is the invitation. Now, I want to make... One more note before we press into how this might look. When those 11 are standing with Jesus, receiving this final command before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he is speaking to 11 in a sea of non-Christians. And the command is, make disciples. I think it is important for our robust, clear definition of discipleship to... To, to make this plain, discipleship and evangelism are not different things. They are of the same fabric. If we think evangelism happens over here and discipleship happens over here, we will continue to feel the divide that isn't there biblically. Jesus is saying, go make disciples of a non-Christian world. Root down in me and then love them in such a way that they will come under my yoke. And so... Our evangelism and our discipleship are inseparable. So if we think that we have been a part of biblical discipleship, but we are not deeply rooted relationally with non-Christians, we're doing something, but it's not biblical discipleship. You follow me? A Christian who studies the Bible with other Christians for 20 years and doesn't have lots of meaningful relationships with non-Christians is doing Christian education, but they are not engaged in discipleship. Not the way Jesus defines it. And so the central command by Jesus to the church before he ascends to the Father is often not obeyed by the most mature Christians in the bunch. It's his single, final command. He's going, you get to be a part of changing the world. My authority with you forever. You get to do it. It's assured. It will happen. I will use you. And we say, i got to get back to Bible study. Now listen to me. I love studying the Bible. Don't get me wrong. But if our discipleship does not include relational collect connection with non-Christians, it's, it's something sub-biblical. Okay, so God intends to change the world and he wants to use you. What might it look like? I think the disciples in this moment would begin to scroll back through their mind. You see, Jesus doesn't define it in this moment because they've just experienced it for years. He doesn't have to say when he says make disciples, they don't, they don't go, well, what does that mean? Because this is what we've been doing. He said, go do what I've done. And so I can imagine after he ascends to the right hand of the Father, as they are together making sense of this, I think their mind would start running back, and I think they'd be going, what, what, how do we engage in this? What might it look like? And I think in part, this isn't the sum total of it, but for our purpose, I want to put something practical and simple and biblical in front of you that at least would have been part of the answer for them. It's not the sum total, but it's part of it. And I think as they arrived at it, they would have realized this is earthy. 
And this is unimpressive, and this is counterintuitive, but it's what we've experienced with Jesus. It's what he's been doing. What might it look like for you? I think what it might look like for you is eating dinner. I think it might look like eating a meal. Simple, counterintuitive, unimpressive. You don't have to be a president. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be eloquent. You just have to be able to eat. Can you handle that one? You see, what the disciples would have started running through in their mind is going, what did Jesus do? What was his life like? Who was he connecting with and seeing so relationally connected to that his fruit was showing up on their vines? Who was it? Where did it happen? What did it look like? And I think what they would have come back to is meal after meal after meal after meal. This is what Jesus was doing. Do you know that in your lifetime, you will sit at a table and eat food for 38,000 hours and a lifetime? That's what you'll do. And over those meals, these sorts of things will happen. Laughter and storytelling and connecting and falling in love and closing deals. You know, like business and life and family and connection. You can tell the stories of that moment when, when you really loved that person and it was somewhere between main course and dessert and you're like, oh, it's... It's her. You know? Life happens over food. It happens in the simplest of places. And beautifully, this is how Jesus ordered his ministry. He starts at a meal, as you know. His ministry is kicked off feasting at a wedding. Incidentally, his ministry is going to find its culmination feasting at the Lamb's table. And what he punctuated that ministry with along the way? Table fellowship. If you read the book of Luke 10 times, no less than 10 times are there narratives where he's sitting at the table and what's happening? Life is unfolding. Ministry is happening. People are connecting. Lives are changing. This is where his mission unfolds. Sometimes we can think, oh, evangelism. You know, that's for like evangelists. <laughs> They've got to have a big stage and be really impressive and it's the Holy Spirit's going to fall. And he's like, no, no, no. It's just getting stuff stuck between your teeth. You know, it's like that really honest place. of I, I was sitting and eating dinner in Pastor Femi's home last night with a few of these fine folks and it's that embarrassing piece of eating, right? Like where you're eating and all of a sudden the, the, the bite doesn't fully stay in the mouth and it's coming off your chin. And whatever airs I was putting on beforehand... When all of a sudden I'm saying, oh, excuse me. I'm, I'm, uh. Like, we have to connect in real life when we're chomping and chewing and living. And Jesus came a long way to connect in real life. He didn't float above. He didn't come for people's Sunday mornings. He came for their Saturday nights. You follow me? <laughs> and the invitation is that we would be a people so relationally connected to him that his fruit is showing up on our branches. And then we're so relationally connected with others that our fruit shows up on their branches and it's going to happen by eating dinner. And so I want to look at how Jesus eats dinner in hopes that we might do the same. It's simple. It's life-changing. Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at one meal and then by the time we're... we're we're done. I don't have time to work all of the meals, but I'm just going to I'll fold in a few others by our conclusion. But I want to look at one meal for our purposes. Luke chapter 5. What does it look like to dine like Jesus? This is, this is the how. Right? The what is make disciples. Be one, make some. How do we go about it? Go eat like Jesus. And let's explore what that might look like. The first thing that we're going to see in this text is that you're going to have to go to unlikely places. You need to go to unlikely places if your intention is to follow Jesus. You're going to need to go to some unlikely places. Let me see if I can prove it to you from the text. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Where? Okay, at the tax booth. 
And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. There are two outrageously unlikely places that set up this story for us. And I need us to feel it together. The first is that Jesus is connecting with Matthew, the tax collector, at the tax booth. As you know, I don't need to tell you, you have preached sermons about tax collectors. You know all about them, that they are untouchables in the society. They have sold out their people to participate in their oppression and line their own pockets. They're the sorts of people that, that when their names come up, people spit on the ground. He'd sell out his own people for his own benefit. And that's the place where he does it. He sits right there and he oppresses one after another of us for his own benefit. Jesus says, send me there. Father, send me there. I've come a long way to meet with people in the real places of life. He has come to dine and it starts, the story starts at a tax booth, the most unlikely of places. Listen, for Jesus... He builds guest lists and he doesn't build it in sacred spaces. He doesn't write his guest list in sacred places. In fact, he hangs out in sacred places, but the vast majority of his story in the Gospels does not get told in sacred places. Most of his meaningful interactions are not in the temple or in the synagogue. He goes there, he worships, and then he gets on mission. And that's where the action happens. That's where the stories are told. And right now, he's writing his guest list and he's doing it at the tax booth. My question is, how do you determine the guest list at your dinner party? Who's eating dinner in your home? Where did you connect with them? How did their name end up on the guest list? If we're following Jesus, our guest list is not written in sacred places. It's written in very unlikely places. Some of us, the, the home and church have become the sum total of our lives. It's an impossibility to follow Jesus that way. You follow? You can't follow Jesus that way. Not where he's going. Not, where he, not what he's doing. We can become very religious that way. We can scrub up and look presentable that way. But as far as being deeply connected to Jesus' plan for the world that includes you, we're going to get left out if our whole life unfolds at home and in the church. He is in a very unlikely place, connecting with Matthew. And what he says is, I want to come to your house. How are you building your invite list? And then, the second very unlikely place is when he sits down to the meal. What it says is, did you hear it? Matthew threw a great party. And the Greek, what it says is, mega party. It's mega. It's a big party. Matthew invites his whole connected network. Matthew being touched by the grace of Jesus means his network is touched by the grace of Jesus and he throws a mega party. Jesus is connecting with people at tax booths and mega parties. Neither of those is a sacred space in the way that we define it. Quite frankly, the wall between sacred and secular needs to be demolished. You follow me? There is no wall between sacred and secular. This idea of like, here we are in the house of God. And sometimes we feel like we have to say it like that. It's the house of God. Listen, listen. Jesus died to ensure that there is no house of God. As he was bleeding and dying, the temple shroud ripped from top to bottom and his presence was let loose and he's building his house with living stones and they're you. This is not the house of God, you are. 
And so the reality is that if we think we've got we've to huddle up in the house of God, Jesus is saying, that's not where I am. Don't, don't mishear me. He meets with us in power. I don't mean to overstate it. What I mean is, he's leading us out. We come together to be refueled and to celebrate Jesus. And we do that together as living stones in worship. Central worship matters. It's valuable. It's beautiful. What we just did together is holy and sacred and heavenly. I am not demeaning it in the least. What I mean is, it is, it is fuel for something else. Follow Jesus out. He's building his list for the dinner party at the tax booth, and then he's attending a mega party to do his discipleship work. When the, when the men are standing there and Jesus is saying, go and make disciples, they're going, Matthew, by the way, is one of the 11. He's going, oh yeah, I know how that works. It looks like a mega party. <laughs> That's what it looks like. Unlikely places. How do you dine like Jesus? You have to go to some unlikely places. Secondly, you've got to engage with some unlikely people. Some unlikely people. We said these are tax collectors and the sinners. They surrounded Jesus in this text. Did you hear it in verses 30 and 32? Let me read it to you. It says this. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Unlikely people. Hmm. <laughs> Would the people that you, you are frequently sitting at the table and sharing meals with make really proper religious folks uncomfortable? That's what's happening. The religious people are starting to squirm. They're like, Jesus is over there at the mega party, and I don't know if you know everybody's story there, but I kind of do. And uh, Disciples, what's he doing over there? They ask the question of the disciples, but Jesus answers. Did you see that? They're trying to corner the disciples, like, what's, what's he doing? And Jesus comes walking over and says, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'll tell you what I'm doing. If, if you're well, if you're kind of holding it all together and you're doing great, I don't have anything for you. That goes for us as well. If we're holding it all together, we're pretty good. We, we can... We can Jesus doesn't have anything to offer us. He came for the sick, for the needy. So I love to spend time with them. I love to be at the table with them. You see, Jesus specifically has not come for the righteous and the healthy. Specifically, not calling them. <laughs> because incidentally, they're so full of themselves, they won't respond anyway. He said, I need you to be empty. I need you to be so emptied of yourself that when I come extending the invitation, you think, me? You came for me? He says, those folks, they will taste the kingdom before all those in their righteous robes. He came for unlikely people. <laughs> I love... I'll tell you a story about a dear friend of mine that um, he's been he's been cutting my hair for 12 years. He's the he's the only man that I'd like touch my hair. And you may be looking at it going, you need to rethink that. I get it. No. So I've been going for 12 years. His name is Vincent, and he's become a dear friend of mine. Vincent is married to Benjamin. They are both Buddhist. They've been married for 15 years. And uh, Vincent and I have shared a lot of life together. Um, we have cried together. We've prayed together. We've read the Bible together. Vincent and Benjamin came to uh, dinner at my house on multiple occasions. The first time, I had three little boys. And Vincent and Benjamin came to the house. And they brought some dishes, some covered dishes to the, to the meal. And 
We were hanging out all night. They, they were kind of the life of the party. They're part of it all. They, they are dear friends of mine that I adore. When they're on holiday, they send me, they text me photos of themselves on the beach, wherever. So here they are. Here they are. They're at my dinner party. And I love that my boys saw me greet them and hug them at the door and welcome them into table fellowship. And we spent the evening together. And at the end of the night, my boys walked out on the front porch with them. And they said, so... It was this sweet moment where, where I could tell Vincent and Benjamin were trying to figure out like how to honor me and honor my home and honor. I've always been like, so were you guys like, like friends, brothers? And I said, Vincent and Benjamin are married. And and then I hugged them. And I told my boys, give them a hug and tell them thanks for being here. And they wrapped them around their leg. And that night, during bath time, I got to explain God's design for sexuality to my children. And it was in the context of saying, we don't make excuses for sin, but we love sinners. (laughs) If we are not... If you're following Jesus, listen, if you're following Jesus, the accusation that was most consistently leveled against Jesus was, you love sinners. You you smell like them. You've been with them. They say things to him like, you must be a drunk and a glutton because the table where you hang out, that's what they do. That was the accusation made against them. Are you, by any stretch of the imagination, in danger of having those accusations made against you. This is a question that for me as a pastor, like I can go day after day, week after week, month after month. If I am not careful, my life, the gravitational pull of my life is away from following Jesus into the places with the people where he's going. If I don't make it an aim with my energy and my effort and my calling and my direction, I will end up being properly religious, standing outside the gate going, that makes me a little uncomfortable. You see, if we're going to die like Jesus, we will go to unlikely places and we will be with unlikely people. And we will be at a table where Jesus is central. We will be at a table where Jesus is central. Now, Look, look at the way he speaks in verses 33 through 35. I love Jesus' boldness. He doesn't undersell who he is or what he's doing. He's very clear about it. They said to him, the disciples of John, they fast often and they offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, they eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? What he's saying is, the party's all about me. Jesus is humble, but that doesn't mean he doesn't tell the truth. And when it's all about you, the humble answer is, it's all about me. He's the only one in the universe that can properly say it. And he says it humbly and confidently and directly. You tell him to stop partying. I'm here. What an answer. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. You see, he unabashedly declares that he is the center of the feast. And it raises the question, what might it look like to be at a table where Jesus is central? What is that table like? And this is where, for the the sake of time, I'm not going to flip through all of these passages, but I just want to make a few notes about what the table where Jesus is present, what it's it's like in the book of Luke. And I would encourage you to go and work through these passages slowly, enjoying them, celebrating them. But if, if I were to summarize what it looks like table after table after table where Jesus is present, there's a few things that are clear. The first is this, it is magnetic. It is magnetic. 
In this table, Jesus just sought out Matthew and said, I want to come to your house, invite your friends, right? And Matthew throws this mega party. The next party is at the Pharisee's house, and there's this sinful woman that even though there's no reason that she would feel confident or courageous stepping into that space, this is a space that very clearly is not for her, but the the table is so magnetic that she can't be held back. She comes crashing into the place and she's weeping and she's cleaning Jesus' feet and she's kissing all over him. And the Pharisees are going, don't you know who this is? Because once Jesus starts to pursue sinners, there's this beautiful tipping point that starts to happen in his ministry as they all say, he's really serious about it. He wants me there. And they can't be held back. They start thronging in. His table becomes magnetic as as people find their way there. Uninvited guests start arriving because they've heard that this is a place of kindness and grace unlike anywhere else in the world. It's this beautiful tipping point. Some of you heard our story, heard a little bit of our story earlier that in the life of Seven Mile Road, we've got these monthly meal nights where we're inviting non-Christians that we've been praying for to feast with the the church in their area. And the place where we know that a meal night has hit tipping point is when non-Christian neighbors that have come in recent months show up with friends. That's when we know we've hit tipping point. So we pray for men and women that can't get pregnant. We celebrate Uh, anniversaries and the birth of children and we meet people in the midst of their sadness and and in all of these stories what begins to happen is people come and they don't even they don't even really know what's going on they're just eating a meal and there's a room full of Christians that have been praying for them and they've got a table they've got a plate full of food and some food dripping off the chin and we're living real life together we're laughing and talking we'll hit pause at some point in the night and go hey we're celebrating the fact that uh that so-and-so just had a baby and we're, we've taken up gift cards for non-Christian neighbors and we've thrown, we've, thrown, um, we've thrown baby showers and done these different things. And the beautiful point, when you know it gets to a tipping point, is when a non-Christian neighbor comes back the next month and said, I hope it's okay, but I brought the folks that live down the street. They said they felt disconnected in the neighborhood and I said, I told them they know who they need to know. When we get to that point, we start going, oh, the table is magnetic. And the reason the table is magnetic, there's a few things that are true that make it that way. The first is this. People are really seen at a table where Jesus is central. People are actually seen. This woman that is cleaning Jesus' feet, Jesus knows her story. The, The men are thinking, if he only knew what she had done, and then he turns to Simon and he tells him this story. Like, let me tell you the story about two debtors, one who, get, who was in debt this much and one who was in debt this much. Who would love more? And then he turns to this woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. He knew her. He saw her. It wasn't that she was a mystery to him. He was paying attention to her. She knew she was seen. And the story after that, there's a man with dropsy at another religious gathering. He's got, he's got this physical ailment and it's on Sabbath and all the religious leaders are waiting to watch what Jesus is going to do at this meal. Is he going to heal him or not? For them, he's a prop. The guy with dropsy is just a backdrop to what's going on. For Jesus, he sees him. And he says, you tell me, is it right to do good on Sabbath or not? They don't answer him. They know they're going to get trapped. And he heals the man because he sees his pain. He feels it. He enters it. You see, a table where Jesus is central is magnetic because people are finally seen. Listen, this was one of the greatest discoveries for me and my, my evangelism journey. Great evangelists listen more than they speak. Francis Schaeffer, who started the Labrie Institute, a great apologist who defended the Christian faith and was very famous for it throughout the 20th century, was once asked at a public forum, if you had one hour with an atheist, what would you say to them? And he said, I would listen for 55 minutes and I would speak for five. And when I first heard the quote, I thought, surely he's exaggerating. 
But what I've come to find is that so often we think about evangelism first and most of, I've got all of this to unload on you. And certainly there's an announcement of good news. I'm not saying there isn't. We'll get there. But it's only good news if they can hear it. It's only good news if you actually know where they're longing for redemption down in their souls. Where the, every person walking on the planet has eternity in their hearts and they know the world is hopelessly broken. They know it in their bones. And if you'll pause long enough to listen, they'll tell you where they know it. Now you can announce the gospel in a way they'll hear it. Jesus never proclaims the gospel in the same way twice. It always sounds different. If your proclamation of the gospel always sounds the same, you're not preaching it like Jesus. What he has to say to the religious man in John 3 is radically different. He's quoting to him from the Old Testament about a serpent on a stick with Nicodemus in John 3. And in John 4, he's talking to a woman and going, I could satisfy the deepest places of your soul like no man ever could. That was the gospel for her. She'd given herself to five men, no, six, because now she's living with this one, thinking one of them is going to satisfy me. And he's going, that's where the gospel has power in your life. And if we don't listen, we're never going to proclaim it to that area. Jesus plays in 10,000 places, it has been said. And if we will just slow down long enough to see people, we will start articulating the gospel in ways that they can hear. You see, it's magnetic because people are really seen and because they are humbly served. They're humbly served. There's no pride. We haven't shown up because we're so good and together and we've got all the answers for all of your problems. We don't come strolling in with our... I'm here to save the day, set you straight, show you that... I've kind of thought through all the issues and I've got all the answers. And if you just sit there long enough and listen to me, certainly you're going to be convinced. No one's ever been argued into heaven. <laughs> Nobody. The Holy Spirit converts as people are loved. Yes. And as the gospel is proclaimed in ways that they can hear it. The gospel is the power of God to save. But if we slowed down long enough to love and to listen, to humbly serve. And what Jesus says is this. When you show up to a mega party, don't take the good seat. He actually starts coaching his disciples how to show up at mega parties. He says, don't take the good seat. Take the lowly seat. Show up and say, I'm only here to serve. Because listen, the greatness in God's economy is defined not by how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. That's greatness in God's economy. That's how Jesus defines it. And so he actually says, if you're going to show up and my table is going to be magnetic, it's going to be because people are seen. And because they're humbly served by people that don't think that they're better than them. We are not better than Muslims. We're nominal Christians. We're not better. That's not what Pastor Femi was saying. We're not better. We've tasted and seen the grace of Jesus. Like one beggar that has bread turning to the next and going, this satisfies. It's what you're longing for, friend. And when we begin to humbly serve, we will speak the gospel in different ways. We will speak the gospel in a way that people receive it. They may not even buy it yet, but the way that you know you're speaking the gospel in a way that is situated in the hearer's hearts is that they may say, I don't buy it, but they want to believe it. They're saying, oh, that's actually good news for the, for the street I live on, for the house I'm in, for the thing I'm dealing with. If we're not articulating what Jesus has done on our behalf in a way that people can go, oh, I hope that's true. And maybe you haven't listened and served well enough. But as we listen and as we serve, we do speak. We speak the gospel knowing that it is the dynamite power of God to shift eternity. We name it. I remember my, my friend Vincent, we were reading the gospel of John together. We had been friends for five years at this point. And I was talking about the ways that Jesus could, could encourage and reveal the love of God into the places of brokenness and longing that he was in need. And, 
And he stopped me and he said, is homosexuality a sin? You know, we're five years in at this point. I said, yes, it is. It is. And I love you. Jesus loves you. And God has his arms wide saying, will you be willing to receive a love that runs deeper than anything you've ever known? And you realize that all the lesser loves that we think we so desperately need, we don't. It took us five years to have that conversation, but he could hear it from me. He didn't believe it, and he still doesn't. But we love each other, and we're still in discussion. And he knows that there's a Christian who sees him, and he's heard the gospel in ways that he has, he has said, oh, I hear that. You know, he, he has resonated with things. He's actually let me proclaim the gospel in his barbershop to the people that work with him. He said, you tell them. They want to know about heaven and hell. You tell them. You know? The last note is this. A magnetic table where people are really seen. They're humbly served. And in that humble service, the gospel is announced. It is the dynamite power of God. This beautiful story about Jesus, the resurrected king, the true Messiah. And the last note is this. There are no strings attached at this table. There are no strings attached. Meaning, when, when Jesus gets to the end, what he says is this. He says, hey, quit scratching the backs of rich people. He says, are the poor and the crippled, the beggars, are they at your table? Are you frequently having people to your table that will never be able to repay you? He says, that's my kind of feast. There are no strings attached because what he's saying is when we cut the strings, when we quit playing this game of like we're just going round and round trying to position and posture ourselves and we actually start loving people, he says that table is magnetic because people start to see the outrageous, reckless love of God that leaves the 99 to find the one. People start to see it. Grace is visible. So my, my youngest son is five years old and... Uh, he loves, he loves fast cars. That's his fascination. He loves fast cars. The, the Bugatti Veyron. If you're into fast cars, that's a fast one. He's got a little matchbox car. The Bugatti Veyron. And uh, this car is 1,200 horsepower. goes 440 kilometers an hour. And he walks around <laughs> and I'll say, I've got a Bugatti. I'm like, yeah, sort of. Uh, <laughs> But what he means is, like, when I hold it and I see it, I know what shape it is. I would, I would know it if I saw it. You know, like, I, I know. He didn't, he didn't have a Bugatti, but he's, he's got a Bugatti, you know? Mm. Jesus, at the end of, of Luke 5, what he said was this. He says, there's going to be a time where I go away and my people fast. We're in this unique moment of a people that know what it is to feast and know what it is to fast. We're between the tables, yeah. right? Wow. We have the communion table where we remember what he's done, but we're waiting for the table. Wow. <laughs> and the table, I'll tell you this one, it's like the 1,200 horsepower, 440 kilometers an hour, the whole thing run like the magnetic table of the Lord Jesus that one day you will be ushered to if your faith is in him. One day the sky will be peeled back and we will see God. We will see the glory of the King. And we will be welcomed to the Lamb's feast. And that table is magnetic because it's there. It's there that what he is saying is this. I see you. And all of your brokenness and weakness. You. Like in all of your need. When you couldn't do a thing for yourself. I saw you. And I took the posture of a humble servant. I went low. And I cut the strings. There are no strings attached. Listen, you will never be able to repay him. Never. One day, for those that are in Jesus, we will be ushered into a kingdom that knows no end, where it is endless joy and perfection and fullness and feasting and relationship. There will be no end. It will swamp all of the sadness of the past. We will be whole and full forever. And we 
cannot pay him for it. We were the poor, crippled beggars going, please. He's ushered us in. And what he's saying is this. <laughs> you've got a Bugatti, right? You've got a, you've got a table. It, it's not that table. But if you will form an invite list in unlikely places, you will find unlikely people and you will see them. Like enter in compassionately, letting your insides twist the way that Jesus do when he looks at people that are harassed and helpless and don't have a shepherd. And you feel it with them. You serve them and you love them, not because you're better than them, but because he did that for you. The hope is that people will taste something at our table and they'll begin to long for the real thing. And oh, what joy if one day you and I, with our eyes on Jesus, our faith turns to sight and we see him and we feast together and we embrace at that table. Oh, by God's grace, that up and down that table, there will be men and women that feasted at your table and mine that have found their way home. God's plan is to change the world and you are central to his plans and it looks like eating dinner he has all authority he'll be with you to the end of the age will you go eat dinner to the glory of God amen thank you for listening to the gospel in Lagos we pray you've been blessed by this message to learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.